We're looking at the subject this morning, the joy of a trusting heart. And our text is Isaiah 36. If you'll look at your bulletin outline, the first point is, we want to look at the difference between an ineffectual faith and an effectual faith. Ineffectual, doesn't work. Effectual, it works. What is the difference? It's vital that we learn this distinction. Your salvation rests on a correct understanding here. When the commander in the field addressed the beleaguered Israelites surrounded and confined within the city walls of Jerusalem, this official of Assyria intentionally, we read, spoke in Hebrew so that all the onlookers would hear and what? Be demoralized. That was the purpose. The officials knew Aramaic. They could have spoken in Aramaic. But no, he spoke in Hebrew so all the people could hear and be brought low, discouraged. The main point was that Israel would be foolish to expect deliverance from their God just as all these nations previously subdued by Sennacherib were foolish to think that they would be protected by their gods. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says, the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Isaiah 36, verse 18. You see what's going on here. There is an assumed, an assumed parallel of faith Sennacherib's commander sees no difference between the faith of the defeated nations in their idol gods and the faith of Hezekiah and the people of Jerusalem and their faith in the Lord God. To him, it's one and the same. And he uses that assumed parallel to demoralize the Israelites and to insult Jehovah. It's almost, almost like he's bragging. You know, (laughs) if any God should be worthy of faith, it's our God who has given us all these stupendous victories. Wherever we go, wherever we put boots on the ground, we come out the victors. Within context, these Assyrian commanders admitted that the nations whom they had already defeated were people of faith. They were people of faith. Look at verse 18. Skip down there. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says, the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? And then he lists some of those uh, kingdoms. He goes on. Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his country or his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? Isaiah 36, verse 18 through 20. Now, apart from the fact that these gods to whom the commander made reference are worthless, lifeless idols, he had a point. He had a point. 
The point is that the defeated and the subdued nations were believers too. They were. They believed that their God would deliver them from Sennacherib's war machine. So how silly to think that Hezekiah's God could fare any better. This is a point that did not escape Hezekiah. He sent messengers to the prophet Isaiah saying, now you have to go over to chapter 37 for this, verse 4, Hear the words of the field commander whom the king of Assyria has sent to ridicule the living God. You see where Hezekiah is headed on this? The commander says, no gods have been able to deliver any of these other people. Why do you think it's going to be any better with your God? And he has come to ridicule the living God. So all this talk about the nations having faith in their gods has not dissuaded Hezekiah in the least. Why not? Move further down in the text, chapter 37, to Hezekiah's prayer. Chapter 37, verse 18 and following reads, Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. There he says it again. He goes on. It is true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them. For they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Isaiah 37, verse 17 through 20. What we are learning here, brethren, is that belief alone, belief alone is not saving any fact. There has to be a right object to your faith. It has nothing to do with sincerity. I'm sure that all these countries over which Sennacherib rolled his forces, leaving devastation, death, and poverty behind, I believe they sincerely believe that their gods would protect them and deliver them. But the objects of their faith were idols. Isaiah says, wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Isaiah, just a few chapters onward, if you flip through, go to chapter 44. And beginning at verse 13, Isaiah gives us one of the best analysis, the best analysis there is of idol gods. I read this, and every time I read this, I get a smile on my face because I'm comparing it with our God. But listen to how you can hear, I think in his words, uh, a bit of cynicism, uh, a bit of jovial just as he talks about the idols of the nations. Here's what he says. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with a compass. He shapes it in the form of a man, of a man in all his glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. 
He cut down cedars or perhaps took a cypress or, or an oak. Skipping down a little bit. It is a man's fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire. He bakes bread. But he also fashions a god and he worships it. He makes an idol and he bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat. He eats his fill. He also warms himself and he says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god, his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me! You are my God! And then you have Isaiah's analysis. God's analysis. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so that they cannot see and their minds closed so that they cannot understand No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I use for fuel. I even bake bread over its coals. I roasted meat. I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? He feeds on ashes a deluded heart, misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, Is not this thing in my right hand a lie? Isaiah 44, verse 13 through 20. Now, you get the irony of what Isaiah is saying here. You've got a block of wood. They they made out of a tree. Throws it into the fire. Gets out his stick. Puts his meat on it. Roasts it. And then the other half of it, he makes it into an idol. (laughs) And he puts it there. And he says, Oh, you are my God. You saved me. And Isaiah writes, He cannot save himself. He cannot say, He cannot say, Is not this thing in my right hand? A lie. A lie. In all this, brethren, we discover that having faith is not enough. Having faith is not enough. The object of your faith is all important. The nations that Sennacherib of Assyria crushed and spoiled were people of faith, but the objects of their faith were only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Chapter 37, verse 19. In contrast to that one to whom Isaiah prayed, O Lord Almighty! God of Israel, and thrown between the cherubim. You alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heavens and the earth. Give ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherim has sent to insult the living God. 
Isaiah 37, verse 16. What is he saying? He's saying, here is the God, not made by human hands, but the God who did the making. The God who made the heavens and the earth and everything that's in them. And not a God of inanimate stone or wood, but the living God. In these days of the political elections, we are hearing a lot of people talking about their faith. It is as though faith by itself were all that was necessary to assure divine intervention and divine approval. People talk about how their faith got them through some tough times. This may have been little more than a psychological crutch of positive thinking that had nothing to do with faith in the God of the Bible. Hitler, during World War II, underwent about 15 assassination attempts on his life, all of them unsuccessful. Time and again, when he came through these unscathed, he would credit providence. God, it's in his writings. And he would say, God, this shows that God is on my side. God is protecting me. And he was convinced that God was placing his stamp of approval upon Hitler's war efforts. And yet, and yet, you read his writings The man was deeply into occult worship of Satan in terms of his actual practice. Hitler's God was a far cry from the true and living God of the Bible. While Americans speak often of their faith, if their faith is not in the God of creation, the maker of heaven and earth, even if their God is of their own imagination, that is an ideological concept of God rather than a physical concept of God. Still an idol, and the result in the same. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself. He cannot say that the thing in his right hand is a lie. He can't bring himself. Paul adds this dimension which most people never consider. It is this. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. The God of this age, Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Now notice the last phrase. Who is the image of God. You want an image representation of God? It isn't a block of wood. And it isn't your imagination going awry. The image of God is Jesus Christ. And if you study Him, you'll find God. Did not Jesus say to His disciples, He who has seen Me has seen the Father also. And so it's a a contest between ineffectual faith that doesn't do anything and effectual faith. And the object of faith is very key here. 
People can believe in their own imaginative view of God. It's just as much idolatry as a block of wood. It won't do anything more for them than this chunk of wood. might look like it has a face on there, but it ain't alive. can't do anything. It's that description Isaiah gives in chapter 44. Now that brings us secondly then to faith in God versus trust in God. Note in our text this morning, Isaiah 36, verse 15, King Sennacherib's commander understood the difference and he slanted his argument for surrender in these terms. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Observe, this commander does not say, did not say, do not let Hezekiah persuade you to believe in the Lord. It's not the way he phrased it. He used the word trust. Don't let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord. Why the word trust instead of the word believe? Let me suggest a few things. Belief is mental assent. Trust is affirmative action. Belief is recognition. Trust is reliance. Belief is principle. Trust is practice. Belief is ideology. Trust is reality. We just learned that a person can have faith and yet that faith can be ineffectual because the object of faith, that is what they believe in, is not God but some figment of their imagination. Faith in a man-made conception of God. Not the God who, as the Almighty, has the power to truly help. The object of our faith must be the God of the Bible if we truly want results. But now we come to a different issue. What if, what if the object of our faith is, is the God of the Bible? Is that enough to assure us His presence and intervention when we call on Him for help? What if our faith is not in idols of man's making, but in the God of Scripture? Well, here's the question. Does belief in God, the God of Scripture, move the hand of God on our behalf? Do we not hear people say all the time, Well, I believe in God. And they don't mean necessarily a block of wood. They're talking about the God of the Bible. I believe in God. And on the basis of that professed faith... They believe that God is their friend, that God is a refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Psalm 46, verse 1. Yeah, I believe in God. Brethren, did you know that there is a faith in the true God of the Bible, not in idols, 
which in the end is bogus and does no good. James made a very pointed assertion about this. In fact, he wrote a whole book about it. It's in our Bible, the brother of our Lord. Here's what he wrote. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Answer, show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by deeds, by what I do. What is he saying? He's saying there's no such thing as true faith without deeds. They go together like a hand in a glove. Where you find faith, you're going to find deeds. He goes on in the text. This is in James 2. You believe that there's one God. Oh, now we're getting into good theology here. Hmm, Yes. You believe that there is one God. Not multiple gods, just one God. And the one God revealed in the Bible. That's what you believe. Yeah, yeah, that's what I believe. Okay, okay. Good, says James. Even the demons believe that. And they shudder at that belief. You foolish man. Faith without deeds is useless. First he says it's dead. Now he says it's useless. And it's useless because it is dead. James 2, verse 17 through 20. What James is saying is that any faith that does not result in trust, deeds, commensurate with the belief, is useless, dead faith. Even demons can muster up that kind of faith in God, but in the end, they're demons still. Their faith in God does not change them. They do not trust in God. They do not actively lean on Him for life and living. They do not adopt God's moral principles of behavior. They continue in their wickedness, in their deception, in their lies, all the while they believe in God. I'd say it kindly. I think the demons know God better than most of us. Because they know not just about God, but God as He is. God as their Creator and in their case as their Judge. They know some things in terms of their knowledge that we gloss over. If your faith in God does not change you, then your faith is bogus. You can call God Savior, but He isn't calling you brother or sister. And I'm fearful that as much as 75% of professing Christendom in America falls into this category. They know the Bible facts about God. They know the story of creation. They believe in God as Creator. They can recall the prophecies promising a coming Savior. They know they need a Savior. They believe Jesus is that Savior. 
But all of this falls short of actually trusting Christ as Savior. Knowledge is good. It's necessary. True faith believes the truth and it shuns falsehoods. But faith without commitment is faith without trust. And faith without trust is faith without deeds. And faith without deeds is dead. And dead faith never lays hold of God any more than the demon's faith makes them children of God. You better understand the difference between belief and trust. We, we, we speak a good line. Well, yeah, I believe in God. Okay, has it changed you? What has it done for you? Where's the obedience to God's Word? Next, look at some characteristics of trusting faith. Number one, trusting faith seeks God's honor over personal safety. The problem with most people's definition of faith in God is that their alleged faith is all about what God is going to do for me. Lord, I'm in trouble. When are you going to come, step in and help? Now, I believe that you can come to my side. I need you for your deliverance, and I need deliverance now. It's me, my I. Me, my, I. It's their definition of faith in God. Hezekiah listened as Sennacherib's commander relayed all the victories they had had over the other nations. And then in verse 20, Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save his land from me? How can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? I'm on a roll here. These commanders are saying, When Hezekiah was informed of this blasphemy, he sent off an envoy of trusted advisors to Isaiah the prophet saying, this is what Hezekiah says. This day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace. It's when children come to the point of birth and there's no strength to deliver them. He's saying, we're like an uh, unborn child. We're, We're in trouble. You know? Something's happening here. He goes on. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God, that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that still survives. Isaiah 37, verse 3 and 4. What is it that has Hezekiah so upset? It is the rebuke and disgrace evident in the field commander's speech against Israel's God. And the fact that Sennacherib himself had sent his official to ridicule the living God. And the shame of it all that God had to hear it. It's almost like he's saying, Lord, I wish you wouldn't have heard that. This is such a shameful thing for this commander to come and speak in Hebrew to everybody and insult the living God. And he requested 
did Isaiah pray. But he did more. Hezekiah did more. He obviously received a letter from Sennacherib, himself reiterating all the obnoxious speech of the field commander. And so he carries this letter, Hezekiah does, he carries this letter, this blasphemous letter, into God's temple. And the scripture says, he spread it out before the Lord. Now that's a human thing to do. God doesn't need us to show him the actual physical letter for him to know what's in it. But it's symbolic of what he's doing. He's saying, take a good look at this guy, Lord. Look at, read his letter. It's full of blasphemy and vile things said against you. O Lord Almighty, God of Israel, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, O Lord, hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, see. Here it is, this letter. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to insult the living God. And it's true, O Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste of all these people and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire, destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from His hand so that, here's motive, so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Isaiah 37, verse 16 through 20. Observe that Hezekiah does not simply pray for deliverance. He does pray for that, but not simply for that. He states his underlying motive. What is his motive? So that all the kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Trusting faith seeks God's honor over personal safety. Of course, he'd like to be delivered. But more than that, he's saying to God, I just can't take it this blasphemer, writing letters, sending his field commanders, insulting God, like he's somebody. Secondly, trusting faith seeks God's solution over man's alternative. Hezekiah and his people were in a bad way. If you don't know the story, you can read back in the earlier chapters. They had been under siege for some time. Sennacherib had encircled the city. No one was getting in. No one was getting out. Food and water, the very essentials of life, were scarce and becoming even more depleted by the day. Sennacherib's commander put it in the most disgusting terms. Chapter 36, verse 12. You will have to eat your own filth and drink your own urine. Now, folks, that's pretty desperate. We know what we're doing. We've cut off your food supply. We've cut off your water. (laughs) Don't tell us you're doing well. Don't tell us your God is delivering you. Already many in Jerusalem had died. Hezekiah asked Isaiah, pray for the remnant that still survives. Chapter 37, verse 4. We're down to a few compared to the thousands that live in this city we're down to a remnant well desperate times calls causes believers to consider desperate measures but for some God is not the answer 
He seems to be distant, uncaring, unconcerned. And so people opt for secular and humanistic solutions. They want something in the here and now, and they don't want to wait for their prayer to be heard and their prayer to be answered. And guess what? Hezekiah was given an alternative by Sennacherib to total annihilation. It's in verses 16 through 18 of the 36th chapter. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me. Come up to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a a land of corn and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nations ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Isaiah 36, verse 16 through 18. This alternative is clear as crystal. Surrender, Hezekiah. Surrender will be good for you. You'll get your own farms back temporarily. And even when I come and take you away, it will be to a land like your own with plenty of food to eat and lots of stuff to drink. That's what I'm offering you as an alternative. Or, or, (laughs) you can hole up in Jerusalem starving to death as you are until I penetrate your walls, march through your streets and slaughter many and whatever's left, take them into captivity as slaves. Like it or not, your God will not be able to help you so Better wise up. That was his alternative. It is a brilliant and diabolical appeal to human reason. Hezekiah, please, come on. Use your head. Use your head, boy. Life in a goodly land of foodstuffs and wine or... Slaughter on the streets of Jerusalem. You choose. You choose. Uh, there was a third alternative, however, never mentioned by Sennacherib's field commander, and it's this. God, the living God whom Israel served, would indeed hear their prayers and rescue them from Sennacherib's evil intentions. Verse 21, Isaiah 36 says, but the people remained silent and said nothing in reply because the king had commanded, do not answer him. Hezekiah was following the good counsel of King Solomon before him, which was this. Do not answer a fool according to his folly or you'll be like him yourself. Proverbs 26, verse 4. Some people don't deserve an answer. <laughs> You're going to talk like a fool. You try to reason with a fool. You try to get them to see the truth about what you're saying. You'll become a fool like them. Don't do it. Now that brings us then thirdly to the joy of a trusting heart. Hezekiah is told time and again along with his people, don't, don't listen to the Hezekiah. Don't trust in the Lord. Things aren't going to work out for you. But there's joy of a trusting heart. Number one, the confident expectation that God will answer your prayers. James instructs us how to pray. Here it is. 
If any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault. And it will be given to him. If you ask, it will be given to you. He goes on. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all that he does. James 1, verse 5 through 8. So there's that question of sincere faith, which is this business of trust. James is talking about a trusting faith, as we've already discovered in the latter chapters of his book, where he talks about faith without deeds attached to it. Hezekiah's people pray trustingly to God to intervene. And God sent Isaiah to Hezekiah with these words. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Because you have prayed to me concerning Sennacherib, king of Assyria. This is the word the Lord has spoken against him. Now, we've been hearing a lot of speeches from the commanders. And Sennacherib's written his letter and sent that out. He's getting his word out, his word out, his word out. Now here's a word from God sent to him. Here it is. The virgin daughter of Zion despises and mocks you. The daughter of Jerusalem tosses her head as you flee away. Who is it that you have insulted and blasphemed? Against whom have you raised your voice and lifted your eyes in pride? Answer, against the Holy One of Israel. But I know where you stay and when you come and when you go and how you rage against me because you rage against me and because your insolence has reached my ears. I will put my hook in your nose, my bit in your mouth, and I will make you return the way you have come. Isaiah 37, verse 21 through 29. Trusting faith experiences the joy of confident answers to prayer. Can I say it kindly about Hezekiah? He was down to it. He didn't have an army anymore. He had the walls of Jerusalem. If you ever looked at Jerusalem, any pictures, they're huge walls and it's on the top of a hill. So that makes it in itself somewhat impregnable in terms of armies. That's all he had, though. No more army. People were dead, dying of starvation. But he could pray. And he could pray to the living God. And he could say to the living God, Hey, it's not me. I'm not concerned about me, but boy, this pagan blasphemer has insulted you, God. What are you going to do, God, for your own glory? The second joy of a trusting heart is the joy of forgiveness and recovery and salvation. Why is Jerusalem in such a bad state? Sennacherib's success in laying siege to Jerusalem 
was directly related to Israel's flirtation with other sources of sustenance and strength, principally Egypt. And we have this in Isaiah 30. You've got to go back a few pages. Isaiah 30, verse 9 and following. God is speaking through Isaiah's prophet, and he says, Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord. Now, the obstinate children is not the Assyrians. The obstinate children is Israel. Woe to the obstinate children, declares the Lord, to those who carry out plans that are not mine, forming an alliance but not by my spirit, heaping sin upon sin, who go down to Egypt without consulting me, who look for help to Pharaoh's protection. Skipping down a bit. These are rebellious people, deceitful children, children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say to the seers, see no more visions. They say to the prophets, give me no more visions of what is right. Tell us pleasant things. Prophesy illusion. Stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. We don't want to hear about the Holy One of Israel anymore. Tell us some pleasant nice things. Therefore, this is what the Holy One of Israel says, because you have rejected this message, relied on oppression, depended on deceit, this sin will become to you like a high wall that collapses suddenly in an instant. This is what the Sovereign Lord, the Holy One of Israel says. Now listen to this. In repentance and rest, is your salvation in quietness and here's the next word trust is your strength but you would have none of it Isaiah 30 verse 9 and following ooh that tells us a lot doesn't it if you read chapter 36 verse 6 and following you will discover Sennacherib knew all about this alliance with Egypt and its failure. And he is right when he said, The Lord himself told me to march against this country, Jerusalem, and destroy it. And if you know other parts of Scripture, Assyria was God's rod of punishment, but Assyria became proud and usurped the credit from God. And so we have God's answer in chapter 37, verse 26 to Assyria, which is this. Have you not heard? Long ago I ordained it. The days of old I planned it. Now I have brought it to pass. Hey, Assyria, it wasn't you <laughs> that did all this. I planned it. I did it. You're my pond in my hand. And so he has come against Judah and Jerusalem. Did you know what? Under Hezekiah, under Hezekiah, godly king, Judah repented of her sin. And now because of her trusting faith, God promised recovery and salvation. Let me read it for you. Chapter 37, verse 31 and 32. Once more a remnant of the house of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. For out of Jerusalem will come a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors, the zeal of the Lord Almighty. 
will accomplish this. What did they need? They needed a time to rest. They needed a time to think. They needed a time to reflect. They needed a time to repent. So God surrounded their city, took away their soldiers and their armaments, and put them on the brink of destruction to give them that rest time, prayer time, repentance time that they needed. Trusting faith results in the joy of forgiveness and recovery and salvation. I don't know where you are spiritually this morning, but I will say this. If you'll trust Christ, He'll grant you these things, forgiveness, recovery, salvation. Are you having trouble? Yeah. Well, maybe the trouble that you're having is directly related to sin. Disobedience to God. Lastly, the joy of God's exaltation and the enemy's defeat. That's also part of a trusting heart. I can say it this way. God's people are never, listen to me now, never on the losing side. And they win through God in whom they trust. A spanking is not judgment. Sometimes God spanks us in godly discipline so that we do not perish in our sin. But such chastening is remedial, not punitive. That is to say, it's designed to correct us, to grab a hold of us and turn us about. Contrast that with Sennacherib and his godless army. Let me read it for you. Chapter 37, verse 33 and following. This is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria. He will not enter this city. He will not shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. Which is what they did with walls, you see. They just built a ramp and up over they went. He will not do that. By the way he came, he's going to return. I will defend this city. I will save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. And then the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. And when the people got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. And one day, while he was worshiping in the temple of his god, Nisroch, <laughs> another one of these idols, his sons, Adramelech and Sherezir, cut him down with the sword, and they escaped to the land of the Ararat. And Esarhap, his son, succeeded him. Isaiah 37, verse 33 and following. What was Hezekiah's prayer? Deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms may know that you alone, O Lord, are Got 185,000 people laying dead on the plain. Pretty obvious that the Jerusalemites didn't do that. (laughs) 
not these weak people that are down to no food and no water and just emaciated and no strength left in them at all. But God did it. What now of you? I have a question for you. And my question is this. My question is not, it is not, do you believe in God? I bet you if we took a poll of the people of the, on the streets of Lapeer <clears throat> or even went to the bigger city, the city of Flint or down to Detroit, and we went out there with the microphone, do you believe in God, do you believe in God, do you believe in God, do you believe in God? I'll bet the percentage would be close to probably 95% of people saying, oh, well, of course I believe in God. That's not the question. The question is not, do you believe in God? Here's the question. Have you entrusted your life to Him? That's the question. Have you entrusted your life to Him? Have you gotten past the mental ascent to a trusting heart? Where's the evidence of change? If there is none, for good, no holy change, then you have a bogus faith. You can believe God all you want. Your belief is no better than that of the demons and they have a better view of God than you do. You must trust yourself to God. Solomon put it this way. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He will make your paths straight. Do not, this verse we don't normally read, it's the next verse. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Proverbs 3, 5 through 7. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. It's a hard issue. Why would it be a hard issue? Because you're never going to trust anybody that you don't have some love for. When we were growing up, we had this old two-story in Pennsylvania stairway that went up. So I used to play a game with Jared. I'd get him about four or five steps up from the bottom landing. And I'd say, jump, Jared, jump, Jared, jump, Jared. He'd look at me like, yeah, right, Dad, I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna jump. I'll catch you, Jared. Still no response. Trust me. Trust me, Jared. Jump, jump. You believe I can catch you? Then jump. <laughs> but eventually he got to the point where hands and feet and all, he'd come off of that fifth step up and jump into my arms and I'd snatch him up. That's the faith that saves. brethren. Some of you are sitting here believing in God, but you won't jump. You won't take the leap. Believe God can save me? Oh, yeah. Do you believe you need to be saved? Oh, yeah. Are you a sinner? Yeah. Did God send someone to take care of this sin? Yeah. Who is that? Jesus Christ. 
All good facts, all good assents. But you won't jump. May the Lord draw you today, cause you to jump into the loving arms of Christ. Now I'll tell you, that's a jump far more important than five steps up off of the landing. Because if you don't jump into the arms of Christ, there's another landing waiting for you. And it's the gaping pit of hell from which there is no escape for all of eternity. Christ has come to rescue you from that. Oh Lord Jesus, thank you for your word. Thank you for the story of Isaiah. Thank you for Isaiah. Wow, what a lesson from this guy. I'm sure he had his people saying, you know, maybe Sennacherib has a point. Uh, he's offered us uh, amnesty. Yeah, what's wrong with that? Uh, we'll, we'll get our farms back. But they knew better. as Hezekiah had taught them better. Isaiah had taught them better. So they kept their mouths shut. And they followed their commander to great victory. Lord, I pray that you will help us today in our unbelief. And it is unbelief if we just say we believe in God, but we won't trust you. We won't commit. Lord, help us to commit. Grant us that. Pull us by your saving power into this wonderful truth of your salvation. Help us to rest in you. Stop stop fighting God. Stop trying to do our own thing. And you will get the glory. May you get the glory. For we pray in Jesus' name.